one of the most difficult passages in the entire New Testament, and we get to deal with it this morning. But we believe all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. So, and that includes a passage like 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16. We almost could say that we are continuing in our series answering questions that no one is asking. What about head coverings, Pastor Mark? Should we have head coverings in our worship services? Well, that's the topic that Paul deals with in his letter to the Corinthians this morning. We are starting a new church challenge this morning. We've covered four of the seven that we're going to look at. We've already looked at division and immorality and marriage and then concluded Christian liberty. And we're starting the topic of worship this morning, which will take us from chapter 11, verse 2, all the way through the end of chapter 14. Throughout 1 Corinthians, we've seen Paul address the church on a number of issues and problems that had erupted in division and diminished the church's discipleship and damaged the church's witness in Corinth. And in our most recent church challenge, the challenge of Christian liberty, we considered how the Corinthians were utilizing their Christian liberty inappropriately, thinking only of themselves and not weighing the impact of their behavior on the, their weaker brothers and sisters in the church or how pagan Corinthians would interpret their liberty. So we th see this same behavior being rebuked by the apostle as we begin this new church challenge of the challenge of worship. Now just a little background here might be helpful. In the pagan context of Corinth, women were perpetually dishonored and demeaned. They were not considered citizens and were often subject to mistreatment and abuse from their husbands. And Christianity, as we know both from church history and the Bible itself, had brought a liberating ethic of honor for women, seeing them, as the Bible describes them, as equal to men in value as divine image bearers, and as we see in the ministry of Jesus himself. Paul had already recognized the countercultural counter equality that was present in the Christian marriage ethic in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 4, where he said that the husband's or the wife's body not only belongs to the husband, but the husband's body belongs to the wife, which would have been very countercultural in Corinth. However, that new vision did not erase all distinctions and differences between men and women. In 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16, Paul appeals to the divine order of creation as paradigmatic for how men and women live out their walk with Christ in the church. Paul's main purpose is to bring the gospel to bear on the behavior of the Corinthian women in public worship. While this passage pre presents, as we'll see, several interpretive and application challenges, which we'll take up in turn, the overall meaning, I think, is pretty clear. So before we get into the text, I want you to be aware of my plan for the next several sermons. Since our text raises several questions about gender, and because this is such an important topic in our cultural moment, my intention is to take the next four weeks and do a mini-series on the subject of gender. So we're going to look at that. We're going to deal with the passage this morning in 1 Corinthians 11 and allow that to be a springboard into a little mini-sermon series on the subject of gender. And then we're going to return to our exposition of 1 Corinthians. So our text this morning will get us into the topic, and then we're going to unpack it more over the next several weeks. So this morning, as I've already stated, we're going to take up the fifth challenge, the, the fifth, fifth church challenge that Paul addresses 
in 1 Corinthians, which is the challenge of worship. This morning, we're going to consider men and women in gathered worship. And Paul's burden in this text is to make sure that the way in which the Corinthians engage in gathered worship as a church reflects God. After all, that's the goal of gathered worship, isn't it? To reflect God to one another and to a watching world. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 24 and 25. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all, he's called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. That's the purpose of gathered worship, is that people would see that God is really among us. The goal is that people would recognize that God is really among his people when they worship him. And the way we enter into worship as men and women impacts that. So, how is the church called to reflect God as men and women gathering to worship him? That's our question this morning. How is the church called to reflect God as men and women gathering for worship of him? Five things. Number one. God is reflected in worship when men and women think biblically. God is reflected in worship when men and women think biblically. We're going to look at verses 2 and verse 16, the two verses that kind of serve as a bracket on our text this morning. Paul begins in verse 2 by commending the Corinthians. Notice what he says. Now I commend you, I'm bragging on you, because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I have delivered them to you. Now here he's not referring to cultural customs or societal traditions. He's referring to apostolic teaching, and he's bragging on them for holding to it. So when Paul commends the church, he's not merely thanking them for past obedience, but he's also urging them to remain faithful, especially in light of what he's getting ready to say to them. As a whole, the Corinthians, I think, were following Paul's instructions here, but it seems there was probably a minority in the church that had contested what Paul said. They were being contentious, as verse 16 says. And their dissent had raised questions from others in the church, and so Paul felt the need to make a fresh case to shore up the dissent. But notice, he's commending them for thinking biblically for trying to hold to what he had previously instructed them. Look at verse 16, the end of the text. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So notice at the end of the text, in verse 16, Paul points beyond the local church at Corinth to include other churches as well. When Paul says we have no such practice, he means that none of the other churches practice worship in the way that the Corinthians were practicing worship in this disorderly manner that he's going to get into in the text. The apostle is telling the Corinthians that if you're inclined to be contentious about this, realize that you are departing from the gospel pattern that was previously handed down to you and which is characteristic of all the churches of God. We do no wrong, brothers and sisters, when we seek to get our bearings as far as it's biblical, from the practice of other faithful congregations. So whatever else this passage is teaching regarding men and women in worship, 
we must see it as an issue of apostolic teaching, of divine authority, and we're not given freedom to be contentious, literally victory lovers, wanting to win an argument on these matters. For such contention reveals a spirit that is bucking against the apostles of Christ. Scriptural teaching and biblical authority is what norms our church and what norms every faithful church. This is what we as a church are called to be devoted to, right? Acts chapter 2, verse 42, the very first mark of the church is being devoted to the apostles' teaching. This means that we strive to bring all of our lives into conformity with God's word, giving ourselves to both study it and obey it wherever it takes us. Amen? So that's what Paul is saying this morning, and that's the first principle that we need to get underneath all this. Whatever else this text is saying, which we're going to get into, it's apostolic teaching, and therefore it norms the church. God is reflected in worship when men and women think biblically. Secondly, God is reflected in worship when men and women orient theologically. Orient theologically. That is, take their minds and not only think biblically, but draw theological conclusions from that biblical thinking. Notice he's not starting with our feelings. He's not starting with our cultural customs. He's not saying, hey, what's your culture think? Do that. He's saying, no, what do the apostles teach according to Jesus Christ? And then what are the theological implications of that? Look at verse 3. But I want you to understand, Paul says, that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. See, he's drawing theological thinking here. His instruction here is not rooted in cultural custom, but in the nature of God. The relationship that lies at the core of biblical teaching about gender is one that may surprise you. It's the relationship of the Father and the Son. Paul actually begins this whole discussion about men and women not talking about men and women, talking about God. That's where we need to start in all of our discussion about men and women. He begins this whole discussion about men and women in worship by teaching the Corinthians that God the Father is the head of Christ, who is the head of the husband, who is the head of the wife. So understanding the relational aspects of the Trinity gives us insight into our understanding of gender roles and why those roles exist in the first place. Jesus Christ and his submission to God the Father perfectly embodies love and humility in order to accomplish the will of another. In his relationship to the Father, Jesus occupies a place both of equality with the Father and distinction from the Father. Headship means being in authority over. Just as headship is modeled in the redemptive work of the Trinity... The Son himself in his incarnation saying, I only do what the Father tells me to do. I have come to accomplish the work that the Father has given me to do. Everything that the Father says to me, I say to you. He's living under submission as an equal divine being. As one who is co-equal with the Father. And just as this Headship is modeled in the redemptive work of the Trinity, so headship is to be modeled in the relationship of the husband and wife in the church. To be clear, 
Paul is not talking about substantial equality here between men and women. Men and women both bear the image of God and are equal in divine glory. But there is a distinction of role. Just as God the Father and God the Son are equal in personhood and importance, so too are men and women. So headship does not denote superiority. So too the different roles of women in the church does not call into question the essential dignity or value or worth of women, just as Christ's functional submission to the Father in our salvation does not contradict his essential unity with the Father. You tracking with me? This is orienting theologically. This is thinking about, okay, how does the doctrine of the Trinity affect the doctrine of gender? At the same time, Paul says there is a difference in roles between God the Father and God the Son in working out our redemption. The Father did not die for your sins. The Son died for your sins in obedience to the Father. And so too, between the husband and the wife, there is a distinction of role. This is why Paul can say in one place regarding essential equality, like Galatians 3.28, that there's no male or female in the church by way of essential salvation access to God. And yet, at the same time, in another place, like Ephesians 5, he could say that the husband bears the role of Christ and the wife bears the role of the church in Christian marriage. So which is it? Is it equality of personhood or is it distinction of role? Well, if we're orienting theologically and we're gathering our doctrine of humanity and gender from God, the Trinity who is equal and distinct, then we will say both. It's God's desire that every person in the world submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. The head of every man is Christ. So if you're here this morning and you're entering into this conversation with us about gender roles, but yet you're not a Christian and you haven't been renewed in your mind to think Christ's thoughts after him according to Scripture then your greatest need is to surrender your mind, your soul, your body, your will, everything you are to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Whatever he says, I'll do. He's my king. He's my master. See, the only way to flourish, dear friends, to truly flourish in this life is to yield our lives to the authority of the Son of God. And in the same way, the only way to truly flourish in marriage is for both the husband and the wife to yield Lordship to Jesus Christ and to live according to God's design for each of them. The wife's voluntary submission to her husband as her God-given authority beautifully displays the humility that is characteristic of the kingdom of Christ. And the husband's call to live a life of sacrificial love on his wife's behalf is only possible if his life is grounded under the lordship of Christ. So you notice how Paul is orienting us theologically here. He's calling us to think biblically and orient theologically. Now... He gets into the the, the nuts and bolts of the discussion. Point number three. God is reflected in worship when men and women dress distinctively. When men and women dress distinctively. Look at verses four to six. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it's the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Now, in verses 4 to 6, Paul applies the gospel and this theological, biblical thinking 
to the distinctive dress and gathered worship that was appropriate in the context of the church at Corinth. The problem was that some of the Corinthian women were acting in ways that brought shame on the community by blurring the traditional lines of gender distinction or by appearing to act in a disgraceful or disorderly manner. That is the issue Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians 11. The reality that it appeared, even though it might not have been the case among the Christian women in Corinth, that it, 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 it appeared to some in the church and definitely to the outside world that these women were beginning to blur the traditional lines of gender that were present in Corinth and appearing to act in a disorderly and disgraceful manner, especially in the wives in relationship to their husbands. So their conduct brought shame on the men of the church by discrediting man's natural God-given headship. But Christians should never bring shame on God or one another. Paul denounces two ways that both the men and the women are shaming their heads in the public gathering of the church. Men, when they pray with their heads covered, and women, when they pray or prophesy with their heads uncovered. While it's difficult to understand what the nature of this covering is, it's probably some sort of shawl, or in the men's case, a toga that they would pull up over their head. And these things were communicating certain things to the congregation and to the watching Corinthian culture. So the point, even though we can't quite understand the details of what this head covering is or what it might mean, Paul is making it easier to understand and that his argument is that God designed there to be a clear distinction between men and women and that this distinction should not be eradicated in the church. That people who walk into this, the church should be able to figure out who the men and who the women are. So Paul addresses the men first. And he says that if a man prays or prophesies in the worship assembly with a head covering, that is likely with his toga pulled up over his head, then he's dishonoring Christ. Now he's like, how is a guy pulling a toga over his head dishonoring the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, such head coverings were likely commonly worn by men both in pagan worship in Corinth and it was often a showy display of social status. By pulling their head covering up, they were kind of communicating either intentionally or unintentionally, this is kind of like what the pagan worshipers do, and this is kind of what the high elite in Corinth do. And Paul's saying when people look at these men who are doing this as they pray, they're drawing the wrong kinds of conclusions. They're drawing conclusions like, is that guy worshiping in pagan temples too, or is he flaunting his wealth? in the midst of the congregation. So you can see why Paul commands the men, don't do that. Don't pray with your head covered. Don't pull your toga or whatever might have been worn up over top of your head when you're praying because it communicates things to the culture and to other Christians, especially weaker brothers and sisters that he's been addressing in this part of the letter, the wrong kind of message. Also, if a woman prays or prophesies in the worship assembly, by the way, it's appropriate for a woman to pray in church. Okay? That's why we encourage and, as a matter of principle and obedience, ask that our sisters join us in corporate gatherings in public prayer and pray out loud. Because it is appropriate that a woman pray in the context of the gathered church. 
But, Paul says, if a woman prays or prophesies in the worship assembly without a head covering, that is the opposite of the man, then she's dishonoring her head, that is her husband. So in the woman's case, the head covering most likely referred to some sort of veil or perhaps a shawl. And Paul elaborates on the theme of shame by likening a woman engaging in public prayer or prophecy to shaving her head. Now what does that mean? Well, Tom Schreiner, New Testament professor and one of my former pastors about 20 years ago, describes the problem as follows, and I think he's accurate. If women do not wear head coverings, Schreiner writes, their failure to be adorned properly would be shameful because they'd be dressing like men. A woman's failure to wear a head covering is analogous to her having her hair cut short or shaved. Every woman in the culture of that day would have been ashamed of appearing in public with her head shaved or her hair cut short because she would have looked like a man. So what is Paul saying here? Well, in the culture of Paul's day, in the Corinthian culture, a woman's failure to wear a head covering sent a clear message as to how she was relating to male leadership, indicating her unwillingness to graciously submit. With this concern in mind, Paul instructs men and women on established practice in worship in order that they might not be offensive to their brothers and sisters or create a stumbling block for a watching culture. Schreiner continues and sums it up. He says... Quote, I understand the major burden to be as follows. Women can pray and prophesy in the public gathering of the church, but they must do so with a demeanor and attitude that supports male leadership because in that culture, wearing a head covering communicated a submissive demeanor and a feminine adornment. Thus, Paul does not forbid women to participate in public worship, yet he does insist that in their participation, they should evidence a demeanor that is humble and submissive to male leadership, end quote. So today, what does this mean for us? Well, it certainly doesn't mean we wear head coverings. That has no bearing on anybody's understanding of cultural issues in our day. No one's wearing one. Now, brothers and sisters in other Christian denominations, we respect their right to do this. If they feel like that's what they need to do by their conscience, some more conservative-type denominations... I'm not talking about, we would consider ourselves conservative biblically, but even further conservative than us, maybe wanting to be so strict that they do exactly what Paul says right here, which is means men don't come in with a hat on and women don't wear anything or must wear something on their head. Again, this is a cultural issue that Paul is dealing with in the Corinthian context. The principle applies. The custom can be different. So what would this custom mean for our church? Well, today we obey the head covering commands by not dressing in ways that miscommunicate the gospel. We don't dress in ways that communicate values or practices that the culture would potentially misinterpret and call the realities of the gospel into question. Now, to be clear, this does not mean that men wear ties and we check the length of women's dresses at the door. This does not mean that women wear a Muslim hijab to cover all their skin, but it certainly would preclude a bikini in church, wouldn't it? Or dressing like a prostitute, which would communicate something entirely different that we wouldn't want to communicate, right? Which thankfully none of our sisters do. And it would also mean that a Christian brother 
would not wear a white robe and a white hood to the Lord's Supper. Lest we think, is he a clan member? Or dress like a Buddhist monk in Sunday school. Or wear a dress to a prayer meeting. We don't want our dress and our behavior to communicate a false gospel to a watching world, so we wear appropriate gender-distinctive dress that is above reproach. That's all it means. We wear dress, we dress distinctively so that no one should have to guess when they come into church who the men are and who the women are, what gospel we believe or who is the Lord of our lives. So we reflect God in worship when men and women dress distinctively. Fourthly, God is reflected in worship when men and women relate originally. That is, originally as in creationally, back to the origin of mankind, male and female. Look at verses 7 to 9. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So he's going back to Genesis 1. He's going back to Genesis 1, verses 27 and following, which, Lord willing, we're going to pick up in some detail next week. But my point, and Paul's point here, is that God has revealed something of his nature and his character in the two distinct genders that he has created as humanity. And the church is to uphold the Creator's design and not to behave in ways that confuse or distort it. Because Paul argues from creation, the principle that husbands and wives have different roles transcends culture. But Paul is applying this principle in a culturally specific way. The context changes. The practice alongside of it, but that doesn't mean the principle doesn't abide because it is rooted outside of context in the very design of creation itself. So when Paul says that the woman is the glory of man, he's not denying that women are made in the image of God. He's simply providing additional information what women are, that women are also the glory of their husband, as glory is the reflection of the nature of something. Proverbs says, the wife is the crown of her husband, the glory of her husband, reflecting something of his glory. They share in the glory together in the marriage covenant. Paul makes a brilliant gospel move by appealing to the glory of God in the creation of man and woman. He seems to have something like this cascading effect going on. Remember in verse 3, he has this cascading effect. He says, every man, the head of every man is Christ. Cascading the head of every wife is her husband. Cascading the head of Christ is God. So he does again here in verses 7 through 9. He creates this kind of cascading idea from God to man to man to woman. And in this cascade, glory means the glory and dignity that one person freely gives and awards to another person. So God freely bestows his glory on humankind by making them in the image of God in creation, but man should never keep that glory for himself. 
he rightly and freely returns all honor and glory to the one from whom it came, namely God. And then that same image-bearing sense of glory cascades from the man to the woman. When Paul says man is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man, he describes this beautiful continuity of God's image that spills out in Genesis 1 in the creation order. Just as man should never keep glory for himself, a woman should never keep glory for herself. No human being should be possessive of glory. So practically speaking then, Paul is working out the way headship and glory, that is authority and honor, ought to function in the marriage relationship of husband and wife. Man honors and glorifies God by not covering his head, since submission to another creature, including his wife, would dishonor God's design for him. And for the man to pray or prophesy with a symbol of authority on his head would undermine the God-given relational order of creation. The woman, however, when praying or prophesying in public with her head covered, not only honors God and brings him glory, but also gives honor to the man in that he gives joyful, she gives joyful expression, he gives rather joyful expression to her affirmation of the divinely created order. So they're all committed to honoring God together. She honors God, affirming the goodness of God's design. He honors God by affirming the goodness of God's design. So God is being reflected in the gathering of the worship, a worshiping church. I know that's somewhat complex. It's a foreign way for us to think, isn't it? Because we typically think, hey, just give me the practical reason. Paul's not interested in giving us the practical reason. He's interested in giving us the biblical reasons. He's interested in rooting us in a creation. He's interested in rooting us in Genesis 1 and saying the fall distorted all that. And when Christ redeems us and makes us husband and wife and we're reflecting Christ in the church accurately and we're loving one another well in the context of the local church, it should be a reflection of that original creation design. God didn't get rid of that. We got rid of that. And God is redeeming us and restoring us back into that image. So in all of this, God wants to remind the Corinthians and us that gender distinctions are a good part of God's original creation. They're an innate part of human physiology and social norms, even if the specifics of those norms have some variations. Gender is not finally a cultural construct. While the expressions of gender can have varied forms depending on culture, that does not mean gender itself is a product of culture. It isn't. Gender is God's good idea. It's not inherently oppressive. In a day of gender fluidity where we have internalized the reality of gender, it's good to be reminded that part of our freedom is found, whether male or female, in conforming to our Creator's design as reflected in the biological realities of human gender. And in the midst of this historically recent experiment, say 10 years, of gender redefinition and revolution with the broken promises and the receipts that are yet to be cashed in the coming generation, oh, and there will be pain coming in the wake of this. And the church, we're going to be ready to receive the broken refugees of the sexual revolution, aren't we, church? And we're going to welcome them in. And we're going to love them to life. And we're not going to walk in and say, why is that person looking like a man? We're going to rescue with gospel grace 
and preaching Jesus and long-term patience and love the broken refugees of the sexual revolution. If we won't do that, God close our doors because we got no business calling ourselves a Christian church. We need to do all we can, brothers and sisters, in the years ahead to believe, uphold, and live out the beautiful dignity of God's wonderful creation of humanity as male and female. We must follow through on those distinctions in roles in the congregations that are clear in Scripture and not add to those roles that aren't clear in Scripture. We understand the Bible to teach that elders are to be men, that men are to marry women, and that women are to marry only men. And we're called to be good models of each gender with all of its legitimate variety while communicating in our gatherings an appreciation for and affirmation of our sisters in Christ and our brothers in Christ, as well as the fact that God has designed us to reveal something about himself and the beauty of his design and how these genders work together. And in this creation design, there is both hierarchy and mutuality. The order of creation factors in here. Woman, that is Eve, was first created from Adam. Many take this teaching as denigrating to women. But so as to not distort his teaching or lead to this truth being misapplied, notice what Paul says in verses 11 and 12. Nevertheless, lest you men think you can go lording it over your wives and thinking you're the high people around the church and that women aren't important. In the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. See, he inserts this wonderful biblical balance of mutuality. Paul says that not only did woman come from man, but now all men come through women. You had a mom. Your dad didn't give you birth. Your mom did, every one of us. All us men came from women, even though the first woman came from man. See what Paul's saying here? He's saying, don't, don't think wrongly about this. Orient rightly. There's a beautiful distinction between the genders, but that doesn't mean they're not equally in the image of God, equally valued and equally important in the worship of God. He says we all come from God. So in the end, Paul's gospel-centered solution is that every single element of Christian worship, baptism, communion, scripture reading, singing, praying, preaching, collecting offerings, blessings, benedictions, ought to be for the glory of God. Our worship practices are ways to imitate Christ who never kept glory for himself. He was always in the habit of returning glory back to the Father. And so Paul's solution for the Corinthian church then is a gospel recovery of God's glory as seen in God's good design for man and woman. See, brothers and sisters, culture is always swinging back and forth between hierarchy and mutuality. Christian congregations ought to be refuges from a flattened mutuality on the one hand that sees no distinction between men and women, and an oppressive hierarchy on the other hand that only sees distinctions between men and women. There is a mutuality in the church, and there's a hierarchy in the church, and those are beautifully designed to honor God and live out the gospel of grace. Number five, this is the final point from the text. God is reflected in worship when men and women live humbly. 
God is reflected in worship when men and women live humbly. So first of all, in verse 10, we get this weird word about angels. As if Paul hasn't confused us enough with head coverings and creation order and all this stuff, he says in verse 10, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Thanks, Paul. (laughs) Now you understand why Peter, an apostle himself, wrote, our brother Paul, who wrote the scriptures, wrote some things that are hard to understand. If Peter said that, we don't have a lot of hope, do we? Now, I think we can get at the basic idea of what he's communicating here. What do angels have to do with a woman covering her head? Well, admittedly, we're speculating a little bit here because he doesn't tell us. He assumes that the Corinthians know. We don't have access to those emails. We're told that this head covering is a symbol of authority, right? Now, why do angels care? Why do angels care? Angels translates the Greek word that can mean spiritual beings, angels, or messengers, human messengers. So if angels refers to spiritual beings, which I think it does, Paul argues that Corinthian wives should wear a head covering because the angels are observing them. We know from Scripture that angels observe the church with great interest. We just are so de-supernaturalized in the West, we don't even remember those sorts of things. But... Angels are watching the church. Angels are keenly interested in all that Christ is doing in saving this people. Remember what 1 Peter chapter 1 says? That angels peer into these things, trying to figure out, how's this salvation working out? We also know that angels express submission to God by covering themselves, don't we? Isaiah 6, 2, they covered their feet, they covered their face, they covered their hands. They didn't, they covered their wing, and with two, the, some wings they flew. So they were covering aspects of their angelic presence with showing submission to God, showing that they were honoring God. So Paul may be presenting angels here as a model for women to follow, as we wouldn't want them to be scandalized when the angels look down and see the absence of humility in worship. That's what I think he's communicating. But if it's referring to human messengers, which angelos can mean, it just means messenger, it could mean a human as well. There's a reason that most translators translate it angels because they think it's communicating spiritual beings. I do too. But it can refer to human messengers, that is people who are sent in to observe and report on things. You could see how Paul would be weaving this in because Paul might be saying that wives should wear a head covering because those messengers, maybe unbelievers, who come into the worship service to check out what, how's this Christian movement being seditious toward the Roman government? And they walk in and they start looking at, oh, see, I see, dis- see this, is a, this, is a, this is a movement of tyranny. You see how these women are dressed? I'm going to go report back to the Roman authorities that these women aren't dressing in a way that's honoring and it's communicating sedition. You see how that might draw in some confusion as well? If scouts are coming in, sent from the city to check out Christian worship gatherings, they would be scandalized by the absence of a head covering on women in worship. And because those messengers might convey scandalous news about Christian gatherings, it would be better that the women wear them. So in that case, Paul is referring to scouts in the city. I, don't, I think that's a little bit, I mean, it's interesting, it's, but I don't think it's the main point. 
the city leaders would be interested in those church meetings because they were unusual and they might be inclined to check on those meetings, especially if there were rumors flouting about that women were behaving in socially disruptive ways. It's, it's, it's an interesting thought. But if those messengers walked in and saw the woman's head covered, that would communicate humility and submission and that she was under authority. And so Paul's concerns here was humility and that women not be uncovered so as to suggest disrespect towards authority. It's hard for us today to think about authority without thinking of authoritarianism. Boy, anti-authority is pretty much built into our DNA as Americans, isn't it? It's, it was at our founding. You know, we were, we're going to have our way here even if it's justified. But godly authority, like 2 Samuel 23 describes, is a great blessing, and it's meant for human flourishing. 2 Samuel 23 says, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light. Authority is not bad. Authority, properly used, is, God, is a God thing. Authoritarianism is a wicked sin of mankind. So in our church, we want to model the humble exercise of authority and the humble submission to authority. Wives to husbands, children to parents, employees to employers, citizens to state, members to pastors, pastors to pastors. We're all in, in submission in one way or the other, and we're all to live out that humble submission so that the gospel might not be called into question. And then Paul finally appeals to wise judgment. Look at verses 13 through 15. He says, Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it's her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering? Now, let me be clear. Paul is not teaching, nor is he saying, that long hair on the part of men is a sin. We know numerous examples of godly men in Scripture that we are told had long hair. The issue is the long hair of men that made them look like women. They had hair, and they dressed up their hair like a woman would dress up her hair. That's the difference. It's not that a man had long hair and dressed like a man. Okay? A man who has long hair and dresses like a man is, guess what? A man. But he's calling into question the way they're practicing discernment. He says, judge for yourselves. And then he asks two rhetorical questions to try to engage them in thinking culturally as to what is fitting for the man and the woman in Corinth. He says, does not the natural order of things teach us that there are distinctions between men and women? Most people seem to recognize masculinity and femininity when they see it. So in this case... When a man wore his hair in the manner that a woman wore her hair, it was his shame. A woman's long hair, on the other hand, is her glory, which denotes both the image-bearing glory that she has as an individual and the honor she's intended to bring to the man. So what is more, a woman's long hair should be instructive as to what is appropriate in the assembled gathering of worship, namely covering one's head in prayer for the Corinthians. Again, the ultimate point, it's to display a life that has been changed by the gospel. It's never good for us or the gathered church when we pray, sing, preach, give testimony in ways that undermine the gospel. Whether you eat or drink or pray, whatever you do, 
Do it all to the glory of God. Seek not your own advantage, Paul says, in the very verse that precedes this text, but the advantage of others. Imitate Christ in his humility and his submission in the way that you worship. No one should have to come into the worship service and say, this is a disordered, anti-authority bunch. They don't submit to anyone but themselves. That communicates a false gospel, doesn't it? Because Christians are walking around saying, Jesus is Lord, and that means I'm Lord. No, it means Jesus is Lord. And when we are gathering together and we are worshiping together, we don't want to leave any other impression. Jesus is Lord of us. Jesus is the Lord of us. So in all of our thinking biblically and orienting theologically and dressing distinctively and relating originally and living humbly, the goal is this, reflect Christ accurately. And that's Paul's burden in a very somewhat confusing, difficult text of Scripture. May God help us to display the gospel accurately as a church. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for hard passages that really cause us to have to dive in and think at multiple levels to try to understand what you are teaching us. But we want to love you with all our mind. And so, Lord, help us. Give us insight. Give us understanding in your word. Help us to capture what is at the heart of this passage for us as your people. That is reflecting the goodness of gender in our congregation, living humbly before one another, honoring one another as fellow image bearers, submitting to one another, leading one another in a posture of humble authority, um, not lording it over one another as the Gentiles do, but serving one another as Christ would have us. Lord, let all that we'd be, we do, whether we eat or drink or pray, or lead or submit or dress, may all of it be done in a way that glorifies God. May all of it be done in a way that seeks the advantage of others and not our own advantage. And may all of it be done as a way to imitate Christ, who humbled himself and gave himself for us. We worship you, Lord Jesus, and pray these things in your name. Amen. Let's stand.